It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman and the rest of the gang. Hello, David. Good morning. And of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. And Ralph, you've got a new book coming out. You, you're someone who's actually written more books than I've read. Tell us about the latest tome. This is counterintuitive, as Forbes magazine pointed out recently. It's called The Rebellious CEO, 12 CEOs I've known over the years who got it right. And I, I wanted to publish this book for the longest time because if we don't have contrast and comparisons with the avaricious corporate CEOs of our time, we're not going to be able to measure them according to standards of these CEOs who made profit, but only by respecting and treating their workers well, their consumers well, and the environment respectfully. And I think it's going to produce a lot of discussion because this is not some public interest group commenting on what big CEOs should do. This is people who are in the marketplace and reversed the business model. All right. And to get a copy of The Rebellious CEO, you can go to our Substack site. That'll lead you there. Or you can go to rebellious.ceo. That's rebellious.ceo. And now on to the show. You know, the conventional wisdom in America, propagated by our mass media, would have you believe that we live in a divided country. That's understandable because the media thrives on conflict and our political class likes that narrative because it allows them to divide and conquer. However, our first guest today, Robert Weissman, the president of Public Citizen, argues that the American public is actually unified on most big issues, whether it's over Medicare negotiating drug prices, ending dark money and secret spending in elections, getting off of fossil fuels, jailing corporate criminals, raising the minimum wage, protecting our online privacy and taxing corporations and the wealthy, an overwhelming majority of Americans support reform. So why don't our policies reflect that? In his new book, The Corporate Sabotage of America's Future and What We Can Do About It, Robert Weissman and his co-author Joan Claybrook lay out in stunning detail how giant corporations corrupt the policymaking process, enrich themselves, and leave the American public feeling isolated and disenfranchised. In the second half of the show, we once again turn our attention to the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, and conflict might be too tame a word for what's going on right now, and our guest will probably have some stronger words. For another perspective, we're welcoming that guest, Chaz Freeman, who has decades of foreign policy experience, including serving as ambassador to Saudi Arabia, along with additional diplomatic postings in Thailand and China. We look forward to his worldly and diplomatic take on what's going on in that troubled part of the Middle East. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our tireless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, what can we do about the corporate sabotage of America? David? Robert Weissman is a staunch public interest advocate and activist, as well as an expert on a wide variety of issues ranging from corporate accountability and government transparency to trade and globalization to economic and regulatory policy. For 20 years, he edited 
the multinational Monitor magazine. And as the president of Public Citizen, Robert Weissman has spearheaded the effort to loosen the chokehold corporations and the wealthy have over our democracy. He is the author with Joan Claybrook of The Corporate Sabotage of America's Future and What We Can Do About It. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Robert Weissman. Hey, it's great to be with you. Yeah, welcome back, Rob. The cover of this book is very impressive, listeners. The designer really hit so many of the points, because as if they're tentacles for an octopus, apologies to octopus. You make a lot of recommendations here after your exposés of big pharma, big oil, the military-industrial complex, and so on. I want to start with this enormous left-right support evidenced in the polls for really cracking down on corporate crime, fraud, abuse, corporate control of people's lives. And I remember there was a Business Week cover about 20-some years ago that asked the American people in a poll, do you think there's too much corporate control over your lives? And over 70% said yes. And since then, they've had far more control over children's lives and people's lives and the whole internet gulag and the increasing control over Washington. So give us some idea of the polls that you cite in this book on page 155 that exposes this myth of polarization between left and right back home where people work, live, and raise their families. Yeah, sure. I think you're exactly right. That Business Week poll, if it were to be redone today, I think would show even greater support for the proposition that there's too much corporate power. And then when you dig down into specific issues, you see that people overwhelmingly agree on problems and on solutions. So more than 90% of Americans, for example, want the United States government to negotiate drug prices through Medicare. More than 80% want to end secret spending, so-called dark money and elections. If you ask about campaign finance, basically there's 100% agreement. Current system is a disaster. And one poll between in the New York Times, the only difference among the American people was those who thought the system needed fundamental change and those who thought it needed to be completely rebuilt. And I've looked at that over and over, and I I can't tell which one is the more radical claim. Three quarters of Americans want stronger limits on smog. Even if you give people the false choice between environmental protection and economic growth, people overwhelmingly support environmental protection. More than three in four people want to have CEOs held accountable for the crimes they commit. Eight in 10 think the minimum wage is too low. Four and five support paid family leave, and on and on and on, as you point out, Ralph, and as, as you know very well. And one last thing before kicking it back to you, just by way of context, those are not regular numbers when you get polls. In fact, if you ask people, does the Earth revolve around the sun? Only 80% of Americans agree that the Earth revolves around the sun. So when you get numbers in the 90% or 85%, these are extraordinary levels of national agreement. And huge majorities want to change the tax system from a loophole giant for rich and corporations into something much more equitable. So the the super rich and the big corporations pay their fair share of taxes. It just goes on and on. Now, if this is all the case, Rob Weissman, why is Congress behaving in the opposite direction? They can't even get themselves to have thorough hearings on the corporate crime wave corporate billing fraud, corporate control, corporate subsidies, everything you put in this book. What's the reason for the gap here? Well, I think the very short answer is too much corporate power. 
The slightly longer answer is too much political power by big corporations. And then I think there are, you know, there are more elaborate and important answers as well. So if we want to sort of look at what's going on in Congress right now, you know, in the House, you have Republican control, a party that is barely holding on to an ideology, 100% or 95% at least pro-corporate, but also fundamentally authoritarian and increasingly just nihilist without any purpose. But why did they get that way? How do people like that get elected to office? Well, I think you have to root that in people's real dissatisfaction with how the country has been governed under a regime of bowing down to corporate power. And they've been open to and vulnerable to authoritarian populist appeals, which has landed us in the place we're in. If you step back from the immediate moment, I think the big picture story is that the bounds of what's considered important or the policy solutions that are considered acceptable or reasonable are really constructed by corporations and their lobbyists. And that's the problem we face every day. What do you make of this? The Democrats opposed the Trump tax cuts in 2017. They were horrendous tax cuts for his family, for the super rich, and for global corporations. And on page 32 of your book, you list some of the companies who made a lot of profit in the U.S. and paid zero tax, or what's called negative income tax. They actually got a refund from the Treasury Department. They include, for example, American Electric Power, Booz Allen Hamilton, Advanced Micro Devices, Duke Energy, Mohawk Industries, Textron Corporation, T-Mobile, U.S., Excel Energy, Spartan Nash, Salesforce, Dish Network, and on and on. And of course, we know that in the past, General Electric has made billions of dollars in the early 21st century in the U.S. and paid no federal income tax. A worker at a GM plant in Schenectady sent more money in sheer dollars to the U.S. Treasury than the entire giant General Electric. But when the Democrats took control in January 2019 of the House Senate, Richie Neal, a Democrat from Western Massachusetts, rather liberal area of the country, became chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. One of the first things he said was that he was not going to revisit the trunk tax cuts. What do you make of that? He defied his own party and got away with it. Yeah, well, I, you know, as you know, individuals make a big difference. And Richie Neal is someone who is really close to the corporate interests and, and really stood by them. And, you know, we tell some specific stories about him working on behalf of private equity, for example, not in the space of taxation, but to defend the outrageous practice of surprise medical billing. But if you step back, you're just from Richie Neal and look at what happened in the Biden administration. Biden came in and, you know, his iteration of the Build Back Better bill, he actually did want to do quite a bit on corporate taxation. And at the end, not because of Republicans, but because they could not control enough Democrats, they were able to do some of what they wanted to do. They rolled back some of the Trump tax cuts and they meaningfully increased funding for the IRS, which will enable the IRS to go after corporate tax cheats and super rich tax cheats. But they didn't do nearly enough. And it was because of people you know, like Richie Neal or Joe Manchin who deprived Biden of the majority that he had to deliver on what he wanted to do. And now as we're facing these government shutdown fights over and over, and we're being told this myth that the country doesn't have the money to pay for making a decent society and funding the programs that we need, we've now forgotten the reality that corporations and super rich aren't paying their fair share of taxes. And we've got all the money anyone could possibly need if we just want to tax the people who have the money. 
Well, in your book, it's interesting the way you organized it, Rob. We're talking with Rob Weissman, president of Public Citizen, author of Joan Clay Book of The Corporate Sabotage of America's Future, and what we can do about it. You focus on the big pharma, big oil, the raw power of getting public subsidies, the taxpayers bailing out, subsidizing rich corporations. You have a section on big tech, you know, that's Silicon Valley. You have a section on solutions. And then you have something interesting. For the reader, you have the big pharma rap sheet, the big oil rap sheet, the big tech rap sheet. What did they provide the reader? Well, we're trying to tell a story that I think explains a lot of what's going on in the country and why people are so unhappy. We're trying to point out, as you're highlighting at the beginning of our conversation, that there's this huge disconnect between what Americans want and overwhelming numbers and what we get. We're trying to explain why that is, and then we're trying to show how it plays out. We're looking at the problem of too much political influence by corporations, the really serious problem of corporate welfare, which you've taught me in America so much about. And then we honed in on those issues as it works through the lens of three dominant industries, big pharma, big oil, and big tech. So that's the story we're telling, and we give some solutions for all these problems. And then at the end of the book, having told the story, we want to provide tools for people. So there's these very simple you know, half-page bullet points on each of these topics. So things you can remember, things you want to get an argument at Thanksgiving about, here's some talking points for you. Here are the key points about how corporations have too much political power. Here are key points summarizing how much corporations take from the public in the form of corporate welfare. And then looking at each of these industry sectors, here's the rap sheet. Here's what big pharma is doing to us. One, two, three. Here's what big oil is doing to us. One, two, three. Here's how big tech is harming the country. One, two, three. We call those rap sheets. On page 161, you have very succinct answers to the questions about how serious corporate crime is, and it goes unpunished. Can you give us some elaboration of that? Yeah. Well, of course, I'm reflecting back things that you've taught me and, and, and taught all of us, but with some very specific data. And there is this unfathomable chasm between all the focus on street crime, as serious as it is, and as much as it injures families and individuals, and the much larger problem of corporate crime, which also injures families, community, and individuals, and gets so little attention. There's one other thing that's really important about this distinction before I go through some of the data points on this. The problem of street crime is complicated and, and hard to deal with, and there's cultural issues. There's economic deprivation that underlines that. And if you think about the actual individuals who commit crime, it's not 100% clear how you try to deter the problem. We've got a lot of evidence that hypersentencing and over-incarceration is not a solution. It's a counterproductive solution. On the other hand, when it comes to corporations, they are rational actors personified. They have huge resources to make very calculated decisions that take into account expected risk and expected return. And if they think they can get away with breaking the law and make a lot of money, they're going to do it. And if they think the odds of getting caught are high and they'll be penalized severely, then they won't. It's as simple as that. And because the incentives lead them to commit corporate crime, they do. And here's the evidence. All property crime in the United States costs about $16 billion annually. Just corporate wage theft, just corporate wage theft costs about $15 billion annually, not counting all the other ways that corporations steal and rip off money from us. One example of that would be the Wall Street financial crash, which cost the economy on the order of $22 trillion. 
with a T. One person was criminally convicted for all the wrongdoing that led to the 2008 financial crash. If you look at the violence, death and injury that's caused by corporate wrongdoing, between five and eight million people are injured on the job every year. Workplace injuries and trauma and disease kill about 125,000 people every year. Almost no one is prosecuted for any of those crimes. Overall, academics have concluded that corporate crime and violence conservatively kills about 300,000 people a year in the United States alone from dangerous products, environmental harm, workplace injuries, and so on, which is about 15 times more than the number of people who are killed by criminal homicide. And then the last point on this, which you're alluding to, is corporate criminal prosecution has always been weak in all modern times in the United States, but it is especially weak right now, has been from a relative peak 20 years ago, has progressively declined, hit record low numbers in the Trump administration, which is no surprise. But what, what is disturbing and somewhat of a surprise is that the numbers have basically stayed at the same level, slightly ticking up during the Biden administration. Despite a lot of tough talk from the Biden Justice Department, we've not seen any significant prosecution of corporate crime. There are very few federal cops on the corporate crime beat. What's Congress Watch doing? Tell us. Well, we're pushing on those issues. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's also correct more generally that congressional oversight is nothing like what it was 30 or 40 years ago. The, the, sort of the, both the culture has changed about congressional oversight, the people have changed, the expectations have changed, and it's not as intense and effective as it historically had been. So, you know, as you know, like, we do what we can on the House side, but it's pretty difficult. We're in constant contact with the Senate. We're hoping that the Senate Judiciary Committee is holding hearings on corporate crime coming soon, and we think that they are. You know, from their point of view, they got a lot of important issues to handle, and they do their best. But I agree with you. Obviously, we need more, and we're, we're pushing them to do more. Well, give us a minute each on big pharma, big oil, and big tech before we go to the kind of reforms that you're pushing in this book. Give us a minute on each one. What's big pharma doing to the American people? So quickly, Big Pharma is the biggest lobby in Washington, D.C. by far, which is due in large part to the fact that pharma depends on government support more than any other industry. So they take from us the research that's done by the National Institutes of Health. They use that to develop drugs, don't pay the government anything for it or very little, and then charge through the roof for it. We all pay for it. We pay for it as consumers. But the government itself directly pays for it as the biggest purchaser of pharmaceuticals in the world through the Medicare Part D program. Because of pharma's political power until recently, they had made it impossible for Medicare to negotiate those prices, including for drugs that the government itself had paid for. So that's, that's a huge problem. And we see almost one out of three people in the country rationing their pharmaceuticals because the price is so high. Lots of other problems too, including bad drug safety, and especially we should point out the spread and marketing of opioids by the Sacklers and other companies, as well as the distributors and the pharmacy companies that made a lot of money from opioids, got lots of people addicted. And although that trade has, is now diminished under a lot more control, it set the stage for the fentanyl epidemic that we're now experiencing and is really ravishing people and communities across the country. Those are real community, family, and individual tragedies, and they hang directly on the head of the pharmaceutical CEOs. 
These drug companies are so greedy, they've exported the production of a lot of our pharmaceuticals to India and China under very weak supervision by the Food and Drug Administration. People are astonished when they're told that there is no production of antibiotics in this country. Our country is reliant on China and India for antibiotics, which can be viewed as a national security problem. They charge the American people the highest price for drugs of any of their customers all over the world. Isn't that correct? It's not close. We often play about double of what people in Europe are paying for the, for the same products. And that's simply because those countries choose not to let the companies charge whatever they want. They negotiate prices or they impose some kind of reasonable controls on it. They probably pay too much themselves, but they don't just sit back and let the monopolist price gouge as much as they possibly can. Well, in the 1990s, you were in the forefront of trying to bring down the price of AIDS medicines to people in Africa. And the drug lobby, with Al Gore's support at the time, when he's vice president, was demanding $10,000 per year for their drugs per patient in Africa, which in effect was a death sentence. And you went with Jamie Love and a couple others around the world talking to health ministries. And you got a drug company in India called Sipley to topple Big Pharma's price gouging. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a tremendously important story in its own right, because it's probably saved the lives of about 25 million people who'd otherwise be dead. And it illustrates the bigger problem with Big Pharma. So as the AIDS epidemic and then pandemic was spreading from the United States and around the world and really settling and Africa is the epicenter. You know, the industry was really driven by work from the National Institutes of Health, started to put together treatments for people with HIV AIDS and eventually settled on triple drug treatments that worked and that continue to work and keep people alive with HIV. They set very high prices, the companies did, for those drugs, even though they were very, very heavily reliant on government research and development, charging about $10,000 a year per person or, or more, much more now. The companies wanted those to be global prices. So they charge $10,000 a year per person in Africa as well, even in countries where per capita income might have been $600 per person. So no possible way for a family with $600 per capita income to be able to afford drugs that cost $10,000 a year. And the result was people didn't get access to the treatment and they died. Millions of people died preventively, even after treatments had been made available. As you said, we started pushing and said these prices are too high, that there needs to be competition to bring the prices down. We connected with a company in India called Cipla that had expertise in making generic drugs, knew how to manufacture the key HIV AIDS drugs, and then agreed to start doing it and offered first to make the drugs available for $350 a year. The same drugs that Big Pharma was charging $10,000 a year for. Eventually, that price fell from $350 to below $100 a year per person. Those low prices made it possible for the U.S. government to come in and say, hey, we can save a lot of lives cheaply. We're going to create a new program, which President George Bush did, to support people with HIV AIDS in, in Africa and around the world. A new global facility was also created because it was now affordable to treat people. And as a result, we've got about 28 million people around the world and in developing countries who are receiving treatment, life-saving treatment for HIV AIDS, which would have been unavailable and unaffordable if Big Pharma still had their way. It's a remarkable story, listeners. They've got very little media. 
how a handful of consumer advocates who knew what they were talking about and went into one country after another brought down the price from the death sentence price of Big Pharma for millions of poor people around the world. And Rob Weissman and Jamie Love in our office were very heavily responsible for that. I think our listeners know about big oil. They're gouging their opposition to transition to renewables, the way they keep drilling and buying more oil companies and coal and gas. Tell us briefly about big tech in your book. Well, you know, the way we are talking about big tech in the book is focusing a lot on the harms caused by social media, the way it's led to real developmental and mental health problems for teenagers, especially teenage girls, the impositions it's imposed on our privacy, the way the business model of companies like Facebook have driven and intensified hate and scams and, and racial bias, and the way the companies have maneuvered to defend their monopoly position, all of which is still true. One thing we didn't touch on is the way the exact same companies are now moving at breakneck speed into developing and deploying new generative artificial intelligence technologies, where they and their and the other companies involved, the other AI compatriots, acknowledge very, very serious harms as likely to happen without regulatory controls, but won't pause an instant for those regulatory controls to be put in place. And just one among the many harms that these new AI technologies may introduce is the possibility that we're confronted constantly with things that are fake and fraudulent, but appear to be real. Well, if you start confronting everything and are unable to distinguish if it's real or fake, you can't really engage civically, you can't really engage commercially, short of person-to-person, in-person transactions. So we're seeing the possibility of the destruction of social trust on which society relies through the spread of a lot of fake media, not the old kind of fake media, but now new, convincing, widely available, deep fake technology and other kinds of things that are going to evolve very quickly. There's solutions to these problems, but we need to slow down a little bit. The companies so far have not been willing to do that. So we're working very hard to get controls in place to mitigate some of the worst harms, but it's going to be very hard to keep up with their rapid deployment of this technology. Well, you have about eight ways to curtail corporate power on page 162 and 163. Can you give us a a brief quickly on them? Yeah, these are a high level. And obviously, you know, a book could be written or more on each of these solutions, but they're a good place to start. One is to overturn this Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. That's the one that says corporations can spend whatever they want to influence elections and end big money dominance of our electoral system. A second would be to end corporate capture of regulatory agencies. So the regulators regulate the corporations instead of the corporations regulating the agencies. A third would be to make sure that the giant corporations are paying their taxes, as we've discussed. A fourth would be to take on corporate welfare and eliminate most of the public subsidies that are available or where they make sense to big corporations or where they make sense to make sure the corporations are serving public purposes in exchange for the money they're receiving. A fifth would be to really take on the problem of monopoly, which to give credit, the Biden administration is starting to do in important ways. A sixth would be to restore the right to organize unions in this country. We're seeing a real surge in interest and support for labor right now, including after the recent successful United Auto Workers strike. 
but it's still incredibly hard to actually organize a union. And there aren't that many people doing so. And the primary reason that they're not is because they face the threat of or actually are being fired for trying to organize. If we had stronger protections for unionizing, we'd have a lot more people in unions and the country would be a lot more just. We need to take much more urgent action to address the climate crisis. We need to toughen corporate crime enforcement, as we've been discussing. And a last thing that's really important, where you've led the way in this, of course, Ralph, is to give people direct ability to hold corporations accountable through suing them for the harms that they cause to communities. We have that right. We've had that right from the founding of this country, but it's been restricted significantly. And we've got to reestablish this fundamental right of people to sue corporations that harm them, either individually or in groups through class actions. Well, before we close, we're talking to Rob Weissman with Joan Claybrook, author of The Corporate Sabotage of America's Future, with a foreword by trial lawyer Joseph Kachet. Because of the overwhelming news focus now on the disaster and the genocide in Gaza, over the years, Rob, you've been a supporter of Palestinian rights and support a two-state solution. What's your view now on our government's immersion with armed shipments and diplomatic cover and strategic intelligence backing Netanyahu's genocidal destruction of civilian infrastructure, human beings from babies to the elderly, from the infirm to fleeing refugees? Well, it's not an issue that the public citizen works on directly, but you're right that, that I've been involved in the issue of Palestinian rights for many decades. You don't need to be an expert to understand the horrific nature of what's going on right now. I think it's, it's important in engaging the conversation to be very upfront about acknowledging the horrific nature of the Hamas attack on Israel, but that doesn't give license to Israel to engage in a horrific attack now at a far greater scale on Gaza. And we really need to know almost nothing to know it's wrong to kill children, it's wrong to engage in collective punishment of any set of civilians, and it's wrong to attack hospitals. And obviously, the U.S. government has a lot of influence and sway over Israel and is also supplying weapons to Israel. And I think it's trying to prod Israel to back off a little bit, but the government for sure could be doing a lot more. Rob Weisen, how do people get this book? You know, go anywhere, but online, corporatesabotage.org will get you linked up to everything you want, including if you're someone who likes to read things for free, you can download a PDF of it at no cost. Thank you very much, Rob. Good luck on the book. I hope the NPR and PBS and other outlets interview you so you can get that message across to people. It's not just information, listeners. It's empowering you to come back at 535 members of Congress who can make all the difference and have the awesome power to subordinate corporate supremacy to the rights of the citizenry. Thank you, Rob. Thanks to you all. It's always a thrill being on the show. We've been speaking with Rob Weisman. We will link to his new book, The Corporate Sabotage of America's Future, and what we can do about it at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we're going to get a diplomatic perspective on what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Report Morning Minute for Friday, November 17, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. In corporate crime cases, there are declinations with a press release, and then there are declinations without a press release. 
The Declination's corporate criminal defense lawyers prefer are of the second variety, no publicity declinations. That's according to a new report from Public Citizen titled Corporate Prosecution Doldrums. The report documents the continued years-long decline of prosecuting major corporate crime cases under the Biden administration. But at the end of the report, the authors say that the worst part of the Biden administration's safe harbor policy for corporate criminals is the Justice Department's renewed and expanded promise to reward corporate criminals that self-report misconduct with declinations. The report found that corporate criminal defense attorneys openly state that their goal for clients is to win a non-public declination. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokheimer. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. Chaz Freeman was the editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica's entry on diplomacy. Let's get his take on the war in Gaza. David? Ambassador Freeman is the author of several well-received books on statecraft and diplomacy, including The Diplomat's Dictionary, America's Misadventures in the Middle East, and America's Continuing Misadventures in the Middle East. He also speaks 12 languages. Today, it'll be English. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Very happy to be here. Thank you for the kind introduction. Welcome indeed. Well, we're all watching the news of the slaughter in Gaza and the full backing of President Biden and the vast majority of members of Congress in violation of international law and violating federal statutes against the offensive use of U.S. supplied weapons and against sending weapons to countries that abuse human rights. You've been in the Middle East many years. You know it very well. How would you critique the present government in Washington, which is all that the human rights world is relying on to change the direction of the slaughter in Gaza and heading for a peaceful resolution of that conflict? Give us your broad gauge views here. A couple of observations. One is that the latest polling shows that the American people are not in tune with the administration at all on this support for the Israeli genocide in Gaza is rapidly declining. The number of people who want to stop supplying Israel with weapons is increasing, and the demands for ceasefire are daily going up. I just read a a note from Chicago. The Israeli consulate in Chicago was the subject of a rather large demonstration by Jews for ceasefire, indicating the split in the, the American Jewish communities on this. And I think this is a political issue, which is very disadvantageous to the president. I agree with you that we are violating international law, as well as our own legislation, by supporting Israel in this venture. That, unfortunately, is part of a broader trend in which the former order that we tried to establish after World War II, which was a facsimile of the rule of law internationally, has given way to might makes right. We are ourselves a major violator of the UN Charter and international law, and now apparently we're willing to tolerate genocide and do nothing about it, even though we have the ability to withhold the weapons that are being used to carry it out. Well, I can see Prime Minister Netanyahu in a private conversation with President Joe Biden saying, you know, you got to support us. You have no moral authority. 
You violated international law and slaughtered over a million people in Iraq and blew that country apart, although Israel supported that invasion by Bush and Cheney. You did the same in Afghanistan, in Libya. So we're just following your approach here. So don't lecture us. How would Joe Biden answer that? If you were advising Joe Biden, how would he answer that? I think he'd have great difficulty answering that. And if I were an honest advisor, I would tell him that he would have to admit that the United States ourselves set the precedent for much of what Israel is now doing. That is very unfortunate. I think one of the great pieces of collateral damage from this is the United Nations Charter, international law, and the credibility of these institutions, the UN. But more particularly, I think when next time Americans lecture foreigners about human rights, they're not going to laugh at us. They're going to sneer because this is such a tremendous demonstration of hypocrisy on our part. Well, as the saying goes, one war crime doesn't justify another war crime. And there was last Tuesday a large rally in Washington by pro-Israeli government supporters and had the Democratic and Republican leaders, Chuck Schumer and others, marching along with them. One senator had the Israeli flag draped around them. There was something otherworldly about this demonstration against anti-Semitism while the Jewish state in Israel is slaughtering Arabs in Gaza. And there is no sense of recognition of the thousands of civilians and children, elderly, infirm, mothers, fathers, who've been slaughtered in their homes, apartment buildings, schools, places of worship, UN installations bombed, even though they're clearly marked from the roof, Red Cross installations bombed, refugees of fleeing South Israeli orders being strafed and bombed, and when they get to the South, they're bombed in the South with no place to go, no medicine, no food, no fuel, no electricity, on orders of the Israeli Defense Ministry, which are genocidal orders, of course, because nobody can live without those products. Is there any chance that Congress can begin coming to its senses, asserting its constitutional oversight dealings, having public hearings. There has never been a hearing since 1948 in Congress inviting Israeli peace advocates, many of whom were former generals, ministers in the Israeli government, mayors of cities. They have been blocked from ever having public hearings in the House and Senate to give their view of the conflict against the Israeli government's militaristic party line. What's your view of Congress here? It seems unless Congress changes, it's just going to be a vast refugee camp in Gaza, more death and destruction in the West Bank, and the possibility of spreading this conflict involving neighboring countries and, of course, involving the U.S. Navy and Air Force even more than it's involved now. Let's start with Congress here. You see any possibility of reducing that gap between the increasing public opinion polls, demanding ceasefire, demanding a peaceful settlement, demanding rejecting the genocidal tax of $14.3 billion for more arms to Israel that Biden is trying to push through Congress? I think a return to constitutional practices is essential, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. 
I think, with respect to Congress, there are institutional impediments that reinforce venality, which is what we see. People are elected in order to communicate with the voters. They immediately have to have their hand out to donors to pay for access to the media, and they end up being bought by special interests. But I think there's a broader issue here domestically, and that is the collapse of the entire concept of due process, which is the basic underpinning of democracy and of the rule of law. The idea of due process is that the legitimacy of an outcome is determined by the fairness of the process that produces it, not by whether you'd like the outcome or not. On January 6th, we saw people reject the results of an election because they didn't like those results, even though there was no evidence that the election was unfair. We see now the progressive suspension of parts of the Constitution, habeas corpus now ignored in many cases, people held indefinitely without charge, and we see an abuse of the system of justice to cripple people financially and basically silence them. So I think we have a fundamental problem and it is ideological. And unless that is corrected, we're not going to see the Congress restored to the role that it should play in a, according to the Constitution. Congress has done several things to ensure that it will not be reformed. One is gerrymandering districts to ensure that incumbents have an irresistible advantage for re-election. Another is the primary system, which guarantees that the extreme wings of any political party have the greatest voice in that party. And so I'm not going to hold my breath for the return of constitutional practice in this country, and all the more so because everything I've described is very closely connected with the warfare state that we have created. That is to say, a militarized foreign policy, industrial production that is linked heavily to the military, and the lobbying in the Congress that is linked to the military-industrial complex as well. So I think we're, while one can vote that the basic design of the U.S. Constitution, which was probably the greatest political engineering product ever produced on the planet, that we can hope that it will be restored. But I think we also have to be realistic. The prospects for that did not look good. What would you have Washington do other than rhetoric? What process of resolution for a more permanent settlement of that conflict would you recommend? There have been two-state solution, one-state solution. Some satirists have said maybe three-state solution, secular Israel, ultra-Orthodox Israel and Palestine, or the present status quo. How would you go about it if you were in charge of the White House here? If I had my way, I would have favored the one-state solution. That is a democracy in which the talent and energy of the Israeli Jewish population would have given them a safe and predominant role in management of the country. That is now impossible as a result of the hatred that has grown. Israel is basically harvesting the hatred that it has sown in Palestine. I cannot see Israeli Jews and Palestinian Christians and Muslims peacefully coexisting in any immediate future. So one conclusion that I draw from this conflict is that a two-state solution is essential to the peace and security of both Palestinians and Israelis. On October 7th, the Hamas 
engineered sort of jailbreak from the world's largest concentration camp. And a lot of other people came out and committed horrifying atrocities, not unexpectedly, because they had been treated as great inhumanity over an extended period of time. Israel calls them animals. They behave like animals, frankly. Understandable as that may be, it's inexcusable. It is, I think, Norman Finkelstein, who I did not really know before this crisis erupted, and I've never met him personally, but I've listened to him. He makes the very sound analogy to Nat Turner's slave revolt. Nat Turner and company were driven to the point of madness. They killed about 60 whites, and their policy when they had the revolt was to kill all white people. That is murder by any definition. It is inexcusable morally and legally, but perhaps it's understandable. It certainly did not justify the killing of 120 African-Americans by Southerners angered by the Nat Turner revolt. And just so, Israel cannot justify what it is doing in Gaza. And what it is doing in Gaza, it is made very clear, is one of two things. Either genocide in the form of murdering people at the mass level, or the expulsion of people to other countries. Neither that should be acceptable. Ironically, what happened in Gaza resembles nothing so much as the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto. And if anybody should understand that, it's the survivors of the Holocaust who are now carrying out their own Holocaust. So uh, what I would argue is that when the war ends, which it will at some point, that we need to make sure that a two-state solution emerges. It is said that the settlements in the West Bank make uh, a two-state solution impossible. Nonsense. When Algeria was freed from France and became independent, a million Frenchmen who had settled in Algeria went home. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't nice. But their behavior in Algeria wasn't very nice either. And that of the settlers at present is simply unspeakable. I don't think there's anybody very much who had sympathy for the way they're behaving. Well, you know, history didn't start October 7th. 75 years ago, when Israel was established, it was David Ben-Gurion was the prime minister and considered the father of the modern state of Israel. But he told Nahum Goldman, which was published in Mr. Goldman's book in 1978, that basically it was their land and we took it. And he said it in more confirming detail. And he said, why would we expect them to accept it? You know, it was their land and we took it. And just recently, the Times repeated statements by Prime Minister Netanyahu saying that in order to block a two-state solution, Israel's strategy under his rule was to support and fund Hamas. He used those words, support and fund Hamas. The quote was taken out of a statement he made to the Likud party in 2019. And yet the Israeli lobby here in Washington gives them a free pass. How in the world did Hamas get all those weapons? They couldn't begin to match F-16s and Abram tanks and all the modern civilian technology of the Israeli army. But under an embargo, which is illegal under international law, under Israel's embargo, how did they get all these weapons to begin with? Having said that, the present war in Gaza has the Hamas fighters outnumbered 10 to 20 to 1, and the difference in military hardware is totally staggering. 
how'd they get these weapons if they didn't come through the Israeli underworld? I think they came through tunnels from Egypt and elsewhere, not from the Israeli underworld. I think a lot of them were supplied by Iran. A lot of them, a lot of the training that uh, went into what was, from a military point of view, was quite a brilliant breakout on October 7th, was also provided, I believe, by Iran, and some by Hezbollah, which has shown that you can beat the Israeli army, even if you lack the F-16s of bombs that it has, or tanks that it has. These guys who came out on October 7th, and those who are holed up in tunnels in Gaza, knew that they were going to die, and they didn't see any alternative superior to that. You know, I think I think whatever one says about them, there's no question that they of the about the determination that they had and the willingness to sacrifice themselves that they showed. So this will be a slaughter, yes. I think Israel is basically trying to starve the population of Gaza into leaving, and it's very likely to gas the tunnels that Hamas is hiding in. Some of those tunnels, interestingly, apparently including those under the Al-Shifa hospital, were actually built by Israel when it controlled them. That is why Israel is so sure that there is a bunker under there, because they build it. And they assume that Hamas is using it. So far, I've not seen any evidence of that. Had Israel been behaving in a normal, as opposed to a psychotic fashion, it would have invited the Red Cross or the Red Crescent or some other international body to go in and inspect the hospital and determine whether there were, in fact, MS headquarters or whatever underneath it. If those inspectors had been denied access to the basement, that would have been circumstantial evidence in support of the Israeli claims. But no, they didn't do that. Now they are heavily armed soldiers are going through the hospital, interrogating everyone one by one, terrifying everybody. Meantime, babies who have who were in incubators have died because of the lack of power. And everybody is terrified. No excuse for this. The UN, by the way, has never lost anything like the number of UF workers that have been killed by Israel in this Gaza attack. Over 100 have died, and that is to this point. So it's indiscriminate bombing. It is a gross violation of any standard of human rights. And the fact that we support it is discrediting us. We, we started out claiming that the eyes of the world were upon us and we should shine like a city on a hill. I think much of the world looks at us now and they see dead babies of rubble, now they're shining a city on a hill. What do you see in a year now in Gaza other than a destitute, vast refugee camp that the world has forgotten about and is paying attention to other situations around the globe? Do you see anything other than that and some humanitarian aid coming in here and there Israel soldiers coming in, blowing up houses as they do in the West Bank. Is that what you see? Much of Gaza has already been flat. I think it will be resettled by Israel if Israel has its way. It will take a while for that to happen because any settlement that is down there will be on a pile of rubble and dead bodies. Very unhealthy. I hope that this is halted, and I hope that the world out of this comes a determination by the United States and by the world to insist on the two-state solution 
which has been an illusion, a talking point with no reality for all of this century. We've been talking with Chaz Freeman, former diplomat, former assistant secretary of defense, secretary of state, author of books, fluent in almost 12 languages. I think you're a historical figure, Chaz Freeman. I want to give my colleagues a chance to ask you a question. Hannah? A lot of ink has been spilled and, and words written about how to quote unquote fix things, how to solve the situation. Are signs pointing to the situation actually being resolved? You were involved in mediation for Namibian independence and and Cuban troop withdrawal from Angola. Is this one of those moments where the people who have power to resolve the situation are actually planning to resolve it? Well, that is a question really for the American administration, because it's very clear that the cabinet in Israel is composed of racist extremists whose objective is the genocidal elimination of the Palestinian population. By the way, Mr. Netanyahu is on record many years ago as saying that he hoped for a good war so that Israel could get rid of the Palestinians in its midst. So this is the culmination of years of low-intensity conflict, now high-intensity. There's no impulse that I can see on the Israeli side to resolve this. In fact, what I suspect will happen is that the anxieties that Israelis naturally have now about their security in the middle of the Arab world, unaccepted by it, subject to violent uh, opposition resistance by any Palestinians who happen to still be there, is going to have many effects. I noticed that a lot of Israelis are emigrating. They, you know, they, they will find our country a great deal more congenial and a safer place for Jews than their own. That is, of course, an irony because Israel was established as a safe haven for Jews. And there's probably no place on earth now that is more dangerous for Jews than Israel. Also, you're seeing the emigration of startups, young companies that are moving abroad rather than staying in Israel. And I don't know what this is going to do to the investment climate in Israel. Some people are talking about parallels to the two Christian kingdoms, crusader kingdoms, that were established in the Middle Ages, the kingdom of Jerusalem established twice. First time lasted 88 years, the next time 99, I believe. In both cases, what ended those kingdoms were circumstances very similar to what we see now. That is a combination of internal political rot of the sort that Mr. Netanyahu's effort to drive the judiciary of its independence had set off and the failure of foreign backers to be able to retain their enthusiasm for backing its alien presence in the Middle East. And so those are the two things. And Israel is alienating the world, and a good part of the Jewish population outside Israel is at least as upset as everybody else about Israeli behavior. Ironically, therefore, I'm sorry to say that anti-Zionism, which is quite different from anti-Semitism, is breeding anti-Semitism. And that is nothing that anybody should take lightly or be comfortable with. Well, we've come to the end of our interview with Chaz Freeman, former ambassador, former assistant secretary of defense, assistant secretary of state, and a whole variety of diplomatic posts in countries around the world. Thank you very much, Chaz Freeman. Well, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. 
I want to thank our guests again, Robert Weissman and Ambassador Chaz Freeman. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis and In Case You Haven't Heard. A transcript for this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio or Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. The 40-page print-only edition of Capital Citizen listeners is out. You can get it for $5 or more if you wish by going to CapitalCitizen.com. It's got up-to-date articles on the Israeli-Gaza situation, letters to Biden on the Israeli-Gaza situation, and very unique articles like how the gambling industry is now in the process of addicting high school students after they have been addicting by other industries, the junk food industry and the internet gulag addiction. Now they're going to get these young kids to use their iPhone or computers to gamble while they're at home. There's also a good proposal legislatively that says any benefits members of Congress get, they cannot give to themselves like health insurance until they give it to all the American people. We even have an open letter to the congressional staffers to stop being toadies and do what they did in the 1960s and 70s, inform their senators and representatives and urge them to serve the people. Other articles are eye-opening and you never read about them in the mainstream press. Again, CapitalCitizen.com. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt and welcome to the wrap-up. We have a lot of extra material for you today. First, Steve and David ask more questions of Rob Weissman about corporate power. Any quick questions from Steve and David? Rob, I wanted to circle back to the divided America concept and that myth and just have you comment on what Naomi Klein has popularized the term diagonalism, where there is a critique, for instance, on one side of big pharma, which is what you're talking about, which is, say, access to vaccines and that kind of price gouging, where there's another critique of big pharma, which says vaccines are killing us. Or as regards big tech, where your critique is about surveillance and monopoly. And there's this other critique that, oh, we're censoring conservative voices. Is that another way that America is divided? And how do we overcome that? Well, I think two things are true. And Naomi's, you know, really diving in. She came up with a great term of the conspiracist culture. And that's the degree to which that's gained a real foothold in America. And how once you're sort of in that zone, it has its own rules, logics, and fundamental rationality. It's very hard for people outside to speak in. So the things you're talking about, I think, especially in the area of, of vaccine denialism, are heavily rooted in that space. And it's really hard to reach people there. I do think we need to ask the question of why people are in that space. And I think it's rooted in their dissatisfaction with the corporate controlled economy that's sidelined them. So I don't think the way to reach them is sort of by arguing with the particulars, because I think you can't. It's to provide them a whole different vision of how the world could and should be. That's sort of one component of, I think, what's going on. Even still, I don't think that's dominant. I think the dominant thing that's going on is that on the issues we're talking about, people do agree. Most people are mostly still rooted in reality. They have a lived experience to draw from. They know they don't have to have done the kind of work that public citizen has done to analyze the exact amount of public research and development 
on each of the drugs that Medicare is about to negotiate. They just know they're too expensive and it doesn't make any sense that they can't afford them and that as a result, they have to ration them and that people are suffering needlessly. They just know from their experience that healthcare is outrageously priced. They can see the corporations aren't paying taxes or the people that CEO pay is rising through to degrees and with numbers that actually are unfathomable and that they're struggling to get by. And those are shared experiences, however people identify themselves on the political spectrum. And we see when you ask them about it, that they all, you know, by overwhelming numbers, they agree. Actually, those are problems. And they also agree on the solutions. So this, this conspiracist culture is a real problem. And the rise of authoritarianism is a frightening and immediate problem. But it's also the case that we still agree on so many of these things. And I think if we focus on the things we agree on, we'll actually do quite a bit to curtail this very serious immediate problem of, of authoritarianism, mm-hmm. which has to be confronted directly also. Thank you. David, quickly. Given the corporate stranglehold on Washington, what's the difference between being a good citizen and a good consumer? Do Americans right now have more power as consumers than they do as citizens? Well, I think at the end of the day, the way forward is not to sort of let ourselves be silent into those two roles. It's very hard for consumers to organize as Ralph Estatus without creating new mechanisms for doing so and directly influencing corporations through their buying decisions. The real leverage points come from government. So when we can influence government, we can influence the corporations. And if you're a consumer and you're faced with high drug prices, you can't very well choose not to pay the price. Or if you do, you're doing it at a real cost and you didn't want to. You have to make sure that there's some reasonable policies in place to lower those drug prices. But now buyers can make a big difference. People, you know, entities like local governments or big corporations that buy things at scale, if they make demands on suppliers, for example, for green energy, they can create markets and make a big difference. By the way, listeners, this book gives you all kinds of unneeded to be edited material to send to your member of Congress, to summon them to town meetings back where you live in public auditoriums, as we've talked about. Summon your senators and representatives with clear petitions, legible signers with their occupation and emails, and it doesn't take that many to bring a senator or representative back to your town hall or your community college auditorium. Now, Ralph expands the conversation with Ambassador Freeman by asking about his view on the conflict in Ukraine. Earlier in your career, Chaz Freeman, were quite involved in NATO. And let's talk about Ukraine and the war there for a moment. Clearly, Russia violated international law and the UN charter by invading Ukraine. But there are people who say that NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe, the betrayal of oral promises by U.S. diplomats that to Gorbachev and others that that would not happen. Russia is obviously very sensitive about its western border having lost maybe 50 million people in two world wars from the German invasion. And here they were watching NATO, NATO soldiers, including U.S. soldiers, getting closer and closer with weapons that could reach the Russian homeland stationed in bordering countries. And then they they saw how Washington was thinking about inviting Ukraine to join NATO. Is that a valid criticism? that that provoked Putin, in addition to his other motivations, into invading Ukraine, which was part of the Soviet Union, of course, before the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Well, when the Cold War ended, I was Assistant Secretary of Defense, and I helped to synthesize a proposal called the Partnership for Peace. I was the actual architect of it. I asked the question, if the purpose of NATO was opposition to Soviet aggression in Europe, and there is no more Soviet Union, and if the successor state, Russia, is so weak that it is in danger of falling apart, if they just the answer, what was the question? And I could think of several answers to that, one of which was that there is a requirement in Europe to manage security affairs. In the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars, the concept of Europe was created. The Congress of Vienna put that together. Statesmen at that time had the wisdom to recognize that the defeated disturber of the peace in Europe, namely Napoleonic France, had to be reintegrated into European security architecture. The Partnership for Peace envisaged a NATO-Russia Council, which was created, to perform the function of keeping Russia on side in European security. And it basically challenged the countries of Eastern Europe to do two things. First, to conform to Western European standards of defense policy with a civilian as the defense minister, with a budget reviewed by the parliament, with transparent budgeting. And second, to be able to contribute to the security of other European countries by learning the 3,000 standardization agreements, which enable Greeks and Turks to cooperate, for example, in a search and rescue operation, even though they detest each other and don't speak the same language. NATO created a fantastic multinational software for multinational military cooperation, and it's unique. In the Gulf War, in like, to liberate Kuwait in well, 1990-91, we found we had to bring in NATO standards, and even the Syrians and the Egyptians and others had to learn these, because that was the only way to coordinate a true multinational force. So NATO had some utility, and it could have become a cooperative security mechanism for Europe. But triumphalism, the neoconservatives saw it in the United States, plus the Clinton administration's desire to appease ethnic voters who had a well-founded fear of Russian involvement in their homeland. So it was not pretty. All combined to set aside the vision of a cooperative security system and uh, lead to the expansion of NATO. Now, I think that Mr. Putin's reaction to this was neither unexpected nor irrational. In fact, Boris Yeltsin, as early as 1994, began to object to the expansion of NATO in the direction of Russia. And Mr. Putin, in 2007, at the Munich Security Conference, was absolutely clear about the implications of this. When Georgia was inexplicably invited to join NATO, the Russians reacted militarily to demonstrate that they were serious about this. And in fact, the invasion was preceded by a Russian demand for negotiation, which we stiff on. So we have to look at our own history to understand Mr. Putin's reaction. During our civil war, the French installed Maximilian of Austria as the emperor of Mexico, and 40,000 French troops protected him from the Mexican population. In 1865, once our war was over, the first thing we did 
was to tell the French that if they didn't get out of Mexico, we were coming after them. And the French, to their credit, got out. Two years later, Maximilian paid with his life when Benito Juarez, the great Mexican liberal, had him executed by a firing squad. In 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis illustrated the depth of our concern about the extension of Soviet power to our periphery. Why do we have a difficulty understanding why Ukraine should have been modeled on the Austrian State Treaty of 1956, by which Austria became an independent, neutral democracy that had a requirement in the treaty to treat its minorities fairly, whether they were Italian speakers in the Tyrol or Slavic or Hungarian speakers elsewhere. All of this was a model, and it could have been applied to Ukraine. Had the Minsk Accords been implemented, Russia agreed with those. The Donetsk region, Donbass, Luhansk, would have remained part of Ukraine, but they would have had the rights that people in Quebec have to speak a language other than the national dominant language, namely Russian. There are 150,000 Hungarians in Ukraine who have been denied the right to speak Hungarian, which explains a lot about Mr. Orban's posture on the issue. So I think this is a very complicated issue, but we have simplified it to a less isolated, weak in Russia motivation, and we've killed a lot of Ukrainians as a result. And as far as I can see, Ukraine is going to come out of this war maimed, reduced in size, undemocratic, and perhaps with no Black Sea sea coast anymore. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, would you have recommended disbanding NATO? I would have recommended putting it under European command. The reason for that is I think if you look at the 20th century, you see that if the United States does not play a balancing role in Europe, Europeans screw things up and we get forced to join them. That happened in World War I, it happened in World War II, and it happened in the Cold War, arguably. So I think the United States has to keep a hand in. But the idea that we should somehow command European defenses, or worse, that we should ask the Europeans to provide their own defense, and when they don't, offer them free defense at the taxpayers' expense, this is absurd. We should be taking advantage of our geographic separation from Europe and demanding that Europeans take responsibility for their own defense. And NATO would have been a good mechanism for that. Next, Ralph asked Ambassador Freeman about his experience in the State Department during Nixon's visit to China. I have one more question to ask you. I majored in Far East studies at Princeton, and I noticed that you were the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972, following Henry Kissinger's foray a few months earlier. Could you tell us a little bit about that? You were an eyewitness interpreter. You are fluent in Mandarin Chinese. What was it like? What do you think our listeners, who obviously are not that informed about that episode in American history, should know? In the light of increasing U.S. policy that seems to want to make China into a bigger military threat than, than China is. Well, the Shanghai Communique, which was issued at the end of that visit, and which was personally negotiated by then-President Nixon and Zhou Enlai, while the foreign ministers argued about everything. We disagreed with the Chinese about the Vietnam War, about Korea, about Kashmir, about the role of Japan in the region, and many other things. And those disagreements were left 
for the foreign minister at Stuart-Ardiobel, and that's where I did most of my interpreting. But there are lessons to be learned from that act of statesmanship by both sides. Two requirements led to the gradual establishment of a normal relationship with China by the United States, which has been very good for China and very good for us. And that is, first, an understanding on how to manage the Taiwan problem. Taiwan is historically part of China, and it's separated from China politically as a result of U.S. intervention to stop the Chinese Civil War from proceeding to its logical conclusion. We had good reasons for doing that in 1950, but that grew into a long-term separation of the two parts of China, with mainland and Taiwan. And we agreed on how to handle that. And in 1979, January 1, 1979, Jimmy Carter, as president, formally uh, established relations with China. The other thing that Nixon and Joe and I did, which was very relevant to current times, was to agree that while we have very different ideologies and socioeconomic systems, much more different then than now, we should not pursue ideological confrontation, but rather look for areas of convergence in common interests on which we could cooperate. And that took us very, very far. We have relapsed now. The three joint communiques that describe the Oregon over Taiwan are no longer observed by the United States, except in a, in a transparently fictional manner. And we are back with ideological confrontation, saying that this is all about democracy versus authoritarianism. I wish we would worry more about the status of democracy in our own country and less about how, how other people govern themselves. So I think there are lessons to be learned from that opening, and it would be nice to think that we're capable of grasping them, but I doubt it. Now we return to the topic of Gaza with Ralph and the rest of the team pitching in. I want to ask you, are you getting any media relating to all your historical knowledge and expertise? Are you getting on NPR, PBS? Are you getting into any of the major newspapers? Or are they treating you the way they treat a lot of learned people with great experience, blacking them out? I've never sought renown or public exposure, so I'm not disappointed that I don't have that much of it. I do appear on occasion in various fora, and some people seem to enjoy what I say, and others are outraged by it. So I'm making a difference. I'm confident. But no, I am not a media figure. I have no desire to do that at my stage in life. What about op-eds? Do you have op-eds that are circulating or being printed? I give talks, and I do a lot of research before I give a talk. I decided that I would not do what the scholars generally do in the grand German university tradition, write learned treatises with thousands of footnotes. I would try to make the facts, as I understand them, plain and expose their significance orally. Among other things, this is the discipline in writing things, because it tends to keep the sentences short, eliminate the subordinate clauses, and speak directly to the point. So that's what I do. And I have written op-eds in the past, but it's not a thing I like, because a very good friend of mine, Stephen Kinzer, who teaches how to write op-eds, points out that in order to do it, you have to oversimplify the issue and exaggerate the facts. I'm not too keen on that. On the point of the Foreign Service, recent presidents have really downgraded the role 
of the Foreign Service. They've stripped them of adequate resources, and they've overridden their expertise around the world at U.S. embassies and countries. What is your view of what's happened to the Foreign Service? Well, I wish that our Foreign Service had been professionalized. That was the objective in 1924 when the Rogers Act was passed. It's theoretically the objective still. But we have a spoil system in which people with fat heads and fat wallets get to meet our representatives abroad. We have some very famous incidents. There was a, an American ambassador to Singapore who, when he was discussing an issue with Lee Guan Yu, Lee Guan Yu mentioned that something about the two Koreas, and he interrupted Lee Guan Yu, who was probably the wisest statesman of the century, and said, what? You mean there are two Koreas? Why? We bring enormous ignorance to bear on complex issues sometimes, and the results are not pretty. And we've been able to get away with it because we've had a huge margin for error internationally. But that margin for error is shrinking. And I think we're going to have to reconsider our theory that anybody with a lot of money to give to a political campaign is suited to representatives abroad. So Foreign Service itself, as you say, has been largely marginalized. That's not unusual, but it's particularly that predictable under populism because diplomats are marginal figures. In order to practice diplomacy, you must have empathy for the other side, not sympathy, but empathy. You must understand where they're coming from, and you must be able to make arguments that therefore appeal to them, because the purpose of diplomacy is to persuade other parties to see things your way and do what you want them to do. And in order to do that, you have to convince them that it's in their interest to do that. So immediately, you are at odds with established prejudices and narratives of a populist society. And you are have one foot in a foreign society and one at home. And both sides are suspicious of you. This is why President Nixon hated to use American interpreters, because he feared that we would be interviewed by the press. We might inadvertently say something significant that was to be left to him. Well, a sign of our deteriorating democracy is a reversal of what Thomas Jefferson said when he said, knowledge will forever govern ignorance. I have never in decades seen a more collectively ignorant Congress, for example. And of course, the Trump administration set new records for his nominees. We are a society that doesn't understand the link between knowledge, judgment, and wisdom. Steve? Thanks, Ralph. And actually, I want to throw my time to Francesco, who I think has an interesting diplomatic question to ask Ambassador Freeman. Yes, Ambassador Freeman, a number of countries, particularly those in Latin America, have withdrawn diplomats or severed diplomatic relations with Israel over their conduct in this war. What impact will this have on the war and in terms of the American relationship with these nations once the war is over? Well, it's certainly a signal of a split between us and them. The only country I believe that has actually severed relations is Bolivia. Others have withdrawn their ambassadors. That is not an abnormal thing to do to express displeasure with the policies of the government they are accredited to. I think there's a bit of a snowballing effect going on here as the outrages in Gaza become ever more serious and visible. There is increasing pressure on governments to demonstrate their disapproval of Israel. But Israel doesn't seem to give a fig about that. It goes right on doing what it's doing. So I think the Israelis probably 
calculate that once the war is over, they can recover their image, which is badly battered internationally. I'm not sure they can. I think they have lost the moral argument globally, and I'm afraid they're taking us with them. David? A follow-up to that question. Does Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Syria care about the Palestinians? Except for Iran, would you say that Benjamin Netanyahu is operating under the assumption that these Arab states will pay lip service to the plight of the Palestinians, but they've pretty much washed their hands of them? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. The answer is yes and no. Yes, they care, and no, they don't. They care about the Palestinians who look like them and are Arabs, whether Christian or Muslim. The more extreme Muslims don't care about the Christian Arabs, but they do care, yes. And the nightly television in the Arab world carries live scenes of what is going on in the West Bank and elsewhere, or it has. Now Israel is busy rolling up foreign news outlets to prevent that reality from being broadcast. But on the other hand, they've never liked the Palestine Liberation Organization, and they don't like Mahmoud Abbas, who is the head of the Palestinian Authority. Yasser Arafat was an atheist. That doesn't go well with very religious people. Yasser Arafat also was given the chance to build a state, and he didn't do it. And Mahmoud Abbas is now in the 18th year of his four-year term as president of the Palestine, Palestinian Authority. I think there's a difference between each of these countries and their views. The most intensely involved, of course, is Jordan, because the majority of people who live in Jordan are Palestinian refugees. Same in Lebanon, Palestinian refugees are also a major factor, excluded from participation in Lebanese society. Saudi Arabia expelled most Palestinians during the Gulf War on the grounds that Yasser Arafat had aligned with Saddam Hussein against them. So this is very complicated. I think the final point I would make, however, is that there is rising pressure on all of these governments from the so-called Arab street, meaning ordinary people, to go beyond denunciations of Israeli actions and take action. And of course, they have done this in the past. In 1973, we had an oil embargo, which some um, in the audience may remember, it was quite awkward for many people, raised oil prices permanently, made some industries uncompetitive in the United States, caused a lot of jobs, set off inflation. Something like that is not out of the realm of possibility, nor is the overthrow of some of these governments by a populace that is disappointed to the point of disgust with their inaction on this issue. But yes, I think Mr. Netanyahu calculates that they won't do anything. He may be wrong about that. It's interesting how the memories are so different between the Israelis and Palestinians starting in 1948. Well over 400 times more innocent Palestinians have been killed, injured, sickened, and their property devastated than has been the case against innocent Israelis, over 400 times. And the residents of Gaza are basically in an open-air prison, a frequent description of it. They can't surrender. They can't flee at the present time. They can't count their bodies. They're stacked up, rotting in the sun with stray dogs eating at them. And the more they follow Israeli military orders to flee, the more they're being bombed and strafed. 
and it's like a situation that's rarely occurred in the world in the sense of they're being completely trapped and completely dominated by the two very powerful military forces in the world, Israel and the U.S. military. In fact, U.S. military advisors are over in Israel advising them how to take apart Gaza from their experience in taking apart Mosul or in blowing apart Fallujah. That is how intimate our role is under international law of being an active co-belligerent. And as you know, if we are a co-belligerent under international law, we can be retaliated against under international law. So the situation is completely out of control of the people of the United States, completely out of control of peace advocates, and there are more than a few in Israel, out of control of international criminal courts or the international court in The Hague. So there seems to be nothing left for predictability but a vast, destitute, starving, dying refugee camp for over two million people of Palestinian residents in Gaza. Do you see anything that can change that? Any possibility, any event that can occur to change that course of action, which the West Bank, in a less ghastly manner, has been experiencing with the theft of land, water, colonial settlement, and increasing military aggressive moves against the Palestinians in the West Bank. Well, I'm sorry to say that we ourselves have provided precedence for some of this. Think of Wounded Knee. I didn't realize until I looked it up because of the similarities. People there were disarmed, and then there was a fight, and the entire Lakota Sioux population at Wounded Knee was massacred by the U.S. Army. We gave 13 Congressional Medals of Honor to the members of our armed forces that carried out that genocidal massacre. So human nature apparently has not changed. And one observation I would make is that settlement colonialism almost invariably has been accompanied by genocide. That's what happened in the United States and Canada and Australia. It didn't happen in New Zealand only because the Maoris were strong enough to hold the British at bay. And Israel, even before Gaza, was, I think, becoming an untenable experiment. You have four categories of people living under Israeli control. Full citizens of Jewish Jews and Israeli Jews with full citizenship rights. Second-class citizens, of meaning Palestinian, Arabs, or Israeli citizens, who had lesser access to resources and were discriminated against openly on, in many fields. Then in the West Bank, a population that was totally disenfranchised and under martial law and subject to the Kafkaesque system of pass controls and checkpoints. And in Gaza, an open-air concentration camp, which occasionally Israel would bomb, you know, just as insecure as fish in a barrel being shot with a rifle. Four different categories of people. That is very rickety as a structure, I think. And quite immoral. It's worse than apartheid, which only had two categories of people. This is something different. And I don't think it's sustainable. There are people in Israel, some of them are my friends, who have been very outspoken against this situation and who are a voice of reason and conscience, and I think very persuasive. And I hope that what has happened is a crisis of such proportions for Israel that it will force people to listen to the better 
men and women among them who are often very powerful voices and who, whom I admire greatly, in part because Israel is a tribal society and they're breaking with the tribe. And they suffer ostracism and criticism and even death threats as a result. Chaz, is there anything you'd like to say that we haven't put forward for you to comment on? Uh, sure. Next time, pick a happy topic. <laughs> well, again, we've had Kinsler on, by the way, and we've had Gideon Levy from Haaretz on. And, those, those uh, are pretty, I particularly admire Gideon Levy. He, he's a real hero. Before him, uh, Uri Avneri became quite a good friend. Yeah, and Beth Salem and Amira Haas. And... Well, there are heroic people who are on the right side, and one hopes that their views will prevail. The first step is to get the Israeli peace advocates who come from very prominent positions in academia, government, business, intelligence, to have public hearings in the Senate and the House Foreign Relations Committee. That would break the grip of APAC that has turned Congress into a subservient cocoon of acquiescing with war crimes and now genocide. So listeners who can try to contact their members of Congress, that's the first step. APAC will have very great difficulty blocking former ministers, mayors, heads of intelligence and security groups who have a different view of the Palestinian conflict than the Likud party, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and his coalition of extreme right-wing parties. And now, here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. On Tuesday, political titans like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, and House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries rallied in support of Israel in Washington. While supposedly condemning anti-Semitism, the speakers were joined by Pastor John Hagee, a rabid Christian Zionist who wrote in his book Jerusalem Countdown, A Warning to the World, that Hitler was a quote-unquote half-breed Jew who was sent by God as a quote hunter to persecute Europe's Jews and drive them towards quote the only home God ever intended for the Jews to have, Israel, end quote. John McCain rejected Hagee's endorsement in the 2008 presidential campaign. Meanwhile, The Intercept reports that the ADL plans to add Jewish peace rallies to their map of anti-Semitic incidents. Axios is out with a report on a, quote, internal State Department dissent memo, which accuses President Biden of spreading misinformation on the Israel-Hamas war and alleges that Israel committed, quote, war crimes in Gaza, end quote. Axios continues, quote, the memo, signed by 100 State Department and USAID employees, urges senior U.S. officials to reassess their policy towards Israel and demand a ceasefire in Gaza, where more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war, end quote. This memo comes as the State Department is attempting to establish red lines on Israeli aggression, with Secretary of State Blinken stating, quote, the United States believes key elements for peace should include no forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, not now, not after the war, no reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends, no attempts to blockade or besiege Gaza, no reduction in the territory of Gaza, end quote, per the Washington Post. Al-Mayadeen reports that Colombian President Gustavo Petro will co-sponsor Algeria's war crimes case against Israel at the International Criminal Court. Petro has previously voiced support for ICC action and stated, quote, what is happening in Gaza are crimes against humanity. 
Times Live reports South Africa's foreign minister, Zain Dangor, is also calling for an ICC investigation of Israeli leaders for, quote, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, and, quote, stressing that, quote, failure to do so will exacerbate the growing cynicism that international law is applied selectively for political purposes. From the Huffington Post, quote, Staffers from more than two dozen Democratic congressional offices say they are receiving an unprecedented number of calls and emails demanding for members to support a ceasefire. Let it go to voicemail, was the prevailing guidance in several offices, one staffer said. End quote. Yasmin Tayeb of Empower Change, a Muslim advocacy group lobbying on behalf of the ceasefire resolution, said there have been over 380,000 letters sent to the House alone. Last week, more than 100 staffers staged a walkout calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Journalists have also begun speaking out for Palestine. Over 1,200 journalists have signed a letter, quote, condemning Israel's killing of journalists in Gaza and urging integrity in Western media coverage of Israel's atrocities against Palestinians, end quote. The letter names many of the reporters injured or killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, including Mohammed Abu Hasir, who was killed along with 42 of his family members in a strike on his home. The journalists write, quote, this is our job, to hold power to account. Otherwise, we risk becoming accessories to genocide. Pro-Palestine protesters have also been taking the fight directly to the arms manufacturers. CT Insider reports protesters, quote, blocked entrances at Colt to protest the gun manufacturer's sale of arms to Israel, end quote. Protester Mika Zarazvand is quoted saying that Israel is requesting 24,000 guns from the United States and, quote, we know that two-thirds of them are going to come from cult, end quote. In Arizona, the Tucson Coalition for Palestine staged a, quote, die-in, blocking the roads to Raytheon's facilities, according to Arizona Public Media. Meanwhile, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 50 protesters chained themselves to the door of Elbit Systems, decrying the company for profiting, quote, from genocide per NBC10 Boston. Abed Ayoub, director of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, reports five U.S. citizens from Pennsylvania were, quote, seriously injured after their bus out of Gaza was bombed. The family was on the State Department list of evacuees and followed instructions, end quote. Instead of speaking out for these victims, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman has instead been antagonizing pro-Palestine protesters. At a recent veterans' protest in favor of ceasefire, Fetterman laughed at veterans being arrested and waved an Israeli flag at them, per progressive veterans group About Face. In other news, details of the SAG-AFTRA deal have been released. In a note to members, the Guild wrote, quote, In a contract valued at over $1 billion in new wages and benefit plan funding, we achieved a deal of extraordinary scope that includes above-pattern minimum compensation increases, unprecedented provisions for consent and compensation that will protect our members from the threat of AI, and for the first time, establishing a streaming participation bonus. Our pension and health caps have been substantially raised, which will bring much-needed value to our plans. In addition... The deal includes numerous improvements for multiple categories, including outsized compensation increases for background performers and critical contract provisions protecting diverse communities. End quote. A full summary of the deal is available at sagaftra.org. Finally, ProPublica reports that for the first time, the Supreme Court has adopted a code of conduct intended to avoid improper outside influence on the justices. This code establishes guidelines for acceptance of gifts and recusal standards, both of which have become major points of contention following ProPublica's reporting on Harlan Crow's influence network targeting Justice Thomas. However, the publication is quick to note that this code does not come equipped with any sort of enforcement mechanism. 
Law professor Stephen Vladek is quoted saying, quote, even the most stringent and aggressive ethics rules don't mean all that much if there's no mechanism for enforcing them. And the justice's unwillingness to even nod toward that difficulty kicks the ball squarely back into Congress's court. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting